somebody will say something in a forum or in social media, implying that the only way to show true leadership if you're fighting for your party or your base, your constituency, is to be in fighting mode all the time. I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I thought we were in a bad, in bad shape eight years ago, and, and it, it's, it's gotten so much worse. Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. Today, we're excited to bring you something a little different, refreshingly different from what you normally see on the news or in social media. Politicians who fight for what they believe in with passion and conviction, but also profound decency. And here's the catch. They still win elections. It requires Jedi-level mind tricks and discipline, but it can be done. That's why we invited two very different politicians from opposite sides of the aisle to explain how. Two people who are living proof that it is possible to do political battle without being a jerk. So my name is Spencer Cox. I'm, I'm the governor of the great state of Utah. I grew up in a very small town. We're talking 1,200 people. And just I'm so excited about this conversation. Even if you're not from Utah, you might have heard of Republican Governor Cox. He made national headlines a couple years ago for running a shocking political ad that went viral, which we're going to talk about later. But for now, let's introduce our other guest. She actually squeezed in this conversation from the campaign trail. Meet Democratic Vermont State Senator Becca Ballant. She's in a fierce battle right now for an open congressional seat. I am also very excited to be part of this conversation. I am also uh, from a small town here in Vermont, uh, was elected to the Senate eight years ago, served as the first uh, president pro tem who was a woman. And I taught for years in middle schools around Vermont. Um, I always say that it's perfect to be a middle school teacher in preparation for politics because sometimes it feels a lot like middle school. And um, you also can't be a middle school teacher unless you believe in the possibility of change and you see hope and promise in people. So thank you so much, Amanda, for pulling us together. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm really excited to have you both here. And the reason is, let's, you know, let's just do some real talk here. I mean, you both disagree on many serious policy issues from guns to abortion. Mm -hmm. And you have both resisted cheap shots, vitriol, demonizing your opponents. You're like unicorns. Um, we, we all know that, you know, the country is deeply fractured right now. A lot of Americans that mm -hmm. I meet in my reporting are afraid of each other on all sides. And no established democracy in recent history has been as deeply polarized as the United States. It's from a new study from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So I guess I would start by asking you sort of a fun question, quote unquote fun, uh, which is how would you describe how would you describe politics right now with one word? One word. Uh, I, I guess <laughs> I, I was going to say toxic, but broken probably works, too. Yeah, those are two good choices. Inflamed. And now, let's imagine something better. Could you each tell me what kind of politician you'd like to be, the kind you're most proud of? Not what people want you to be, not the soundbite, but the complicated, messy version that maybe doesn't fit an easy category? Well, I hope it is really seeing the humanity underneath. Um, I think people are starved for conversation that is heart-to-heart, person-to-person. They don't see that happening a lot. We're 
putting each other in in such boxes. And I have heard more than any other thing on the campaign trail this spring that people desperately want to be able to talk to their neighbors again. Hmm. I guess I, I should say right up front that, uh, that that Becca, Senator Ballin, and I don't know each other. This is the first time we've we've ever yes. been yeah, exactly. part of a does. conversation. Yes. No, it is. Yes, it's a blind date. <laughs> and, and we do represent different parties, and we do have very different and divergent views. But but I loved everything she said. It's about listening. It's about being respectful. It's about uh, finding ways to to give people wins. Um, it, 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 this this kind of all or nothing mentality that we've gotten into and, and that kind of toxic mindset is so debilitating for a, a democratic republic like ours. You know, I, I don't know how we survive if, if that's the case. This is the, uh, a country that was founded on collaboration and um, the, the ability to come together to solve very difficult issues and, and compromise. Now, you might think, okay, there's something a little naive about all this, right? Let's just sing kumbaya and get along, etc. Well, as both of our guests can attest, there is actually nothing soft about this kind of politics. It is, in fact, much harder to be decent than to demonize in politics today. For example, Governor Cox is a Republican governor in a very red state, and he's broken with his party in some pretty unpopular ways, criticizing Donald Trump and then, just this spring, vetoing a ban on trans high school athletes participating in sports. That caught the ire of Fox News host Tucker Carlson. So here you have a perfectly normal state filled with perfectly happy normal people somehow run by a low IQ weekend MSNBC anchor. Fortunately, two-thirds of the legislature overrode Spencer Cox's veto and finally got the bill passed. Now, Tucker Carlson is what's known as a conflict entrepreneur. He exploits conflict for his own ends, and crossing him often requires much more courage than going along with your party. And right now, there are very few incentives to do so, which means it can also be very, very lonely to veto a bill against your party's wishes. I wrote a four and a half page veto letter, um, which uh, unfortunately in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. I get that. But but I think we need more explaining and we need more nuance. And I, I've, I've never watched Tucker Carlson. I don't care about Tucker Carlson. I, I know his type and his ilk. And they they, they make a living and it's, it's, it's only about money. They, they don't care about the politics um, by, again, using those bullying tactics and, and inciting fear and, and, and demagoguing and othering people. And, and, and that is what is destroying our country. And so, so I, I don't want to play into that. Senator Ballant hasn't been in the Fox News crosshairs yet, but she does know how ugly politics can be. She's had insults thrown at her from all sides and even had to censure colleagues for bad behavior. She and Governor Cox both have plenty of scars from all the times they've refused to take the bait or the times they've worked with their opponents to actually get things done. We have a very limited view and sense of what good leadership looks like in this country, right? So it is about a fighter. It's somebody brash. It's someone who's going to burn it down. They're going to take it to the mat. They're going to, right? I certainly was, you know, criticized over my career that I wasn't going to be able to do it my way and that I was going to have to throw more elbows consistently. And um, you don't always have to show up in fighting mode. Sometimes you show up as a fighter. 
Sometimes you show up as a defender and sometimes you show up as a peacemaker and you have to be able to move between those three modes. So on today's show, Governor Cox and Senator Ballant get real about when to fight, when to make peace, and how the rest of us can help to make politics work again. Stick around. Back in 2019, former Utah Governor Gary Herbert announced he was retiring. And it seemed perfectly logical that the next Republican to replace him would be his lieutenant, right? Well, the decision wasn't so cut and dry for Cox and his family. We did not want to do it. We could see what was happening. This was 2018, 2019, heading into 2020. We said, if we're going to run, we're going to try to do things differently. We're not going to run any negative ads. Um, We're always going to stay on our message. Uh, We're actually going to run a campaign based around service and giving back. So we'll have service projects in in every town. Uh, we'll, We'll invite people, our opponents, to join with us in these service projects. And then we'll, you know, we'll have debates and talk about uh, our our differences after the service project. Our thought was, if this works, maybe some other people will follow because the the most cowardly people in the world are the people who who advise politicians, right? Somebody ran a negative campaign and won, so now everybody runs negative campaigns. Maybe if we do this right, that will follow and we'll encourage some people to come. Number two, if it doesn't work and we lose, at least we can look back and say we made the world a better place. Not surprisingly, some of his advisors thought he was nuts, and one of them urged him to run negative ads in the campaign anyway. But Cox resisted, and amazingly, so did his Democratic opponent. I'm Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other to be your next governor. And while I think you should vote for me... Yeah, but really you should vote for me. There are some things we both agree on. We can debate issues without degrading each other's character. We can disagree without hating each other. And win or lose in Utah, we work together. So let's show the country that there's a better way. My name's Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. And we we approve approve this message. That went viral in a way that we were not expecting at at all. And, And I think it shows there are a whole bunch of people out there who really don't like where we are. Um, I call them the exhausted majority now. I mean, they, they may accept it. They may they may see that that's happening and there may be no other choices. But um, I like to say my life would be so much easier if I just got up every day and said whatever Fox News said the night before. But that's not who I am. And, and so we have to lean into the discomfort of trying to pull people together. And uh, the, the incentive structure just isn't really there right now for far too many people. Mm-hmm. We've, we've lost that incentive structure to do what we think are the right things for the right reasons. And, and we end up just kind of going down this, I've got to say this, I've got to, I've got to do this, or I'm not going to get elected or reelected and everybody else is doing it. So it must be okay. And, uh, and, and we, we've got to prove that the opposite is true. And I'm grateful that there's a, a few people like you, Senator, that are trying to do that. I'm definitely seeing that as well. They're exhausted mm-hmm. from the vitriol, they're exhausted from the pandemic. You know, they're, they're very concerned about, you know, inflation. They're concerned about the war in Ukraine and they are just, just spent. And what they say is, I want to send somebody who believes in democracy, who believes in community. And, you know, I think it's been really resonant for so many people when I say, this campaign is a, is about turning towards one another and not away from each other. Mm. 
You know, it's interesting because you've both hit on this kind of central paradox of intractable conflict, which is people find it very magnetic. It's very hard to get out once you get in. And at the same time, people want out like they are miserable. <laughs> I will tell you, when mm -hmm. I interview gang members and members of Congress, their expressions are the same. They, they feel trapped. Mm -hmm. They feel like there's no way out. Uh, they're worried about their safety and their families, and they would love a way out if mm -hmm. they could see one. And I guess I wonder, is, is there something almost kind of poignant in the fact that the ad you did with your opponent vowing not to go negative went viral? I mean, it's, it's a fairly small mm -hmm. thing in the scheme of the moral universe, and yet it became breaking news. Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating to see because so again in Utah we're a very red state, right? And, and so the primary was the most contested piece of this. And I I was running against a former governor uh, of the state, former presidential candidate with uh, you know unlimited funds. I was running against a former Speaker of the House who was who was kind of the hard charging Trump like uh, uh, character, and uh, and then a former chair of uh, of the Republican Party. Party, and I was the only one who wasn't going negative, and they all decided to go negative, but uh, against me, not against e each other. And and so, so here, <laughs> classic, yeah, classic. So, so here I am. That that last month, when all of the negativity turned on me, we saw the polling um, all, almost every day. I was losing about one point of my lead every couple days, and I had a ten point lead going into that month. There was a moment in our, I think it was our last debate when I was just, you know, taking incoming. It was just three on one. And there, there's nothing lonelier than being on a debate stage when you're just taking all the, all the hits. And uh, I, I said something at the very end. I just said, if, uh, if I have to tear these fine gentlemen down to be your next governor, then I don't deserve to be your next governor. I want you to know if that's what it takes to win, then, then I don't want to do that. That, that was the, the one piece that, that, that people remembered more, more than anything else. Senator Ballin has had similar moments, dealing with pressure from her own side, behind the scenes, as they were trying to get a bill passed. And we were in really tough negotiations with our counterparts in the House. And the colleague was so mad at me. He was so mad at me because he kept saying, it doesn't make any sense. Why aren't they agreeing mm -hmm. to this? I said, it's not about the policy anymore. It's about how they're feeling about this relationship and he's like, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Like, we're wasting too much time on peacemaking. I said, I guarantee you, that's what this is about. And we have to stay in these conversations and we have to do the work um, of repairing in order to actually get the bill across the finish line. And I remember at one time, he just like was screaming at me, too much talking, too much talking. I was just like, nope, this is the price that we need to pay right now. And he would roll his eyes and he would, you know, he just thought that it was a sign of weakness in my leadership. And I kept saying, this is the only way that we're going to do this. And um, we had a lot of hard conversations, and but we, we got there and we got to a deal. And was that by repairing the relationship with your counterparts? Yes. We had to acknowledge how they were huh. feeling. And he just thought that was a waste of time. And for me, I knew that was the only way we were going to get it forward because ultimately we're all people, right? We want to be seen and they didn't feel seen. 
Governor Cox, I'm curious, this counterintuitive move, right? This step out of the dance is so important and powerful. I wonder if you could tell the story about when there were protesters at your home and what your first reaction, your first intuition was, and then what you and your family ended up doing. In the middle of the pandemic, I was then lieutenant governor and, and running for governor. My um, Governor Herbert at the time had put me in charge of, of the pandemic response. And uh, obviously a very difficult time in our country, very divisive time. And uh, we had lots of people who were very upset and uh, began expressing their anger by protesting um, different houses. So, And they came to my house in, in, in a small rural town out on our farm. And uh, we had protesters out there. And our first reaction was just that of, of disgust and anger. Uh, how dare they? You know, I have, I have a young family and uh, had to keep my kids inside and worried about what might happen. So there was a little bit of fear as well. And we, we were sitting there talking. It was a Sunday and... Uh, you know, we'd attended church, and our message that day was about Christ and and the uh, some of his parables and and this concept of uh, the the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek. And I think it was my wife, my daughter, suggested, well, maybe we should turn this on on the head. Maybe these aren't terrible people. Maybe these are people who are really scared about their livelihoods and and what's happening. And we decided <laughs> instead of uh, being angry and and hiding. Uh, we, my wife and daughter made cookies and, and my sons and I um, got some hot chocolate together. It was a cold day. I was carrying um, a giant, one of those orange, um, like five gallon coolers full of hot chocolate. Right. And, like the Gatorade and, challenge yeah, kind of Yeah, deal. like the Gatorade thing. Um, and, and then uh, my son came out with me and he had a tray of, of cookies and they, they were shocked. Like at first time they're like, wait, is that him? You know, who is this? And we, we did have some, um, some highway patrol members who were there, uh, part of the, the governor's detail who were there to keep our family safe and told mm-hmm. they, they were not excited that we were going out. But, uh, so, <laughs> I bet they so, were. so immediately there's this reaction and then there's like some laughter. And I, I just said, Hey, we just wanted to do something. And, and there was kind of just a stunned silence. Like they, right. they knew they were supposed to be, guard. yeah, they knew they were supposed to yell at me. And, and eventually a couple of them did. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it was mostly there were mostly just smiles and kind of this you know I don't I don't know what we're supposed to do with this this was not part of the plan this was not what we expected and we, we mm-hmm. talked for a minute I didn't stay very long um, but uh, but but just long enough to to share a few words with them and and then we walked back in and and that was it but but I hope huh. at least for a moment it, it changed some some hearts Here's our first rule for politicians who want to defy the culture of contempt. Step out of the dance. Do the opposite of what your intuition tells you to do. It interrupts the conflict and makes people stop and think, if only for a second. And that second can make all the difference. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, I I was, while, while the governor was talking, I was reminded of a conversation I had with a constituent some months ago, he he called me at home, and he was just very, very angry about something that had happened in his hometown. And at one point, he was just like, you know, screaming at me. And and he said, "And you, you government types, you government types, you're always, you know, fill in the blank." And you know, I got so angry, and you know. Luckily, the question that came out was one that was fundamentally rooted in curiosity. And I think curiosity is a way for us 
to get out of these traps, right? And so I'm sure I did not say it in a very kind way, but I said, how much do you think I make, right? And he was like, well, I'm sure you're raking it in. Like all you elected officials, you only do it for the money. How much is that? Can I ask? It's about $12,000. And he got really quiet. He said, why do you do it? (laughs) And then he had a question for you. That's awesome. He did. He had a question for me. He said, why do you do it? I said, I do it because I love serving my community. And he said, oh. Oh, well, that's, that's not what I thought. Hmm. He didn't know. And, and, and right. And so it was this moment of my exasperation got the better of me, but at least I asked a question because I think questions help. Here's our next takeaway. Ask questions, get curious, even maybe especially when you don't want to. We know from the research that that's the best way to de-escalate situations, no matter if you're on the Senate floor or your living room floor. But what happens when your opponent doesn't believe you should be afforded the same basic rights? What then? When we come back, Senator Ballant tells us about the time she and her wife drove up to their new home and noticed the neighbor's anti-gay sign. Don't go anywhere. We're back with Utah Governor Spencer Cox and Vermont State Senator Becca Ballant. So far, we've been talking about how to be civil over policy disagreements or attack ads. But how do you take the high road when you disagree over something that's really at the core of who you are? Senator Ballant told one such story in a recent ad. When we first moved into our house here in Brattleboro, the neighbor across the fence had an anti-gay sign. I get out of the car and I'm pregnant. And at that moment, I felt like, how are we going to make this work? I was really scared about how we were going to make it work. And I felt uh, a lot of buyer's remorse. (laughs) Uh, I felt like, oh goodness. (laughs) Wait, exactly. And he was very, very gruff, what we'd say an old school Vermonter, you know, and he would say to me, you know, Becca, you know, when I first ran for office, he's like, I will never vote for you. Like, I am, I am a Republican. I will never vote for you. I said, I understand. I understand. And um, he would, you know, try to find those things to get me hooked, right? He would try to, you know, sprinkle the conversation with things that would get me, me riled up. But wouldn't take the bait. Just, you know, we tried to find the things that we had in common. We loved history. Um, we also... I love motorcycles and he used to fix up old cars. And, and over time, you know, we got to be friendly with each other. We knew each other's families. I heard him once talking to someone who was a possible renter and I was on the other side of the fence and the other side of the hedge. And I was like breaking the would be neighbors. People were going to rent the space said to him, well, you know, how are the neighbors? And he sort of, you know, nodded his head over towards our house. He said, those, those are the best neighbors you'll, you'll ever have. Wow. Nodding towards us. Wow. And I don't think he ever changed his views on uh, homosexuality. I know that he never voted for me. But I know all of those conversations 
over the fence and taking care of each other. And he would come over and plow our, you know, driveway sometimes, and we would shovel the walk when he got sick. And those little moments of connection really do matter. The governor said something earlier about how those gestures of kindness are often seen as weakness. And I actually think they're incredible signs of strength, you know, internal strength and fortitude when you are confident enough in yourself and who you are and your place in the world to be able to step outside of yourself and say, here's this person who I just disagreed with on the floor about an issue that we both feel so passionately about. And I can step back and say, hey, let me buy you lunch or let me buy you a cup of coffee. And it doesn't mean that I've given up on, you know, my position on a policy. It's that I'm seeing this person as more than just that one issue that we are fighting about. It's easier to do that, you know, on the phone or in person. Very hard to do that on social media, which leads me to ask you, Absolutely. Governor Cox, you... You're you're a big time user of Twitter. In fact, I think your your local paper once said it may be the only thing you have in common with Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> you've posted like thirty eight thousand tweets. How do you manage that? Mm. How do you do Twitter and not be a jerk? Well, it's getting harder <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, mm. I think that, that mm. some of the same strategies we've we've talked about help now. I I didn't have staff running my Twitter. I still don't. Um, it was it was re- it's really me. Um, no one else has my login. And I always believed that social media was being used incorrectly, and that social media should be a reflection of who we are. That if you only knew me on Twitter and you met me in person, I would be exactly who you thought I was. And and so so mm. so so I started mm. doing that, and and. Um, and I would respond to people who were, were angry and upset, and they, they didn't expect it, first of all. They assumed that people would ignore it. They, they never expected to actually have an interaction. And, and it's, you know, it's harder to hate people up close. And, and that worked for a long time until it didn't. And certainly when I became governor and then just with the way the platform has changed and how much uh, more... Uh, you know, toxic. I guess it's it's gotten over the past few years. Now it's 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 almost impossible for me to stay in my replies and reply at all. And in fact, it's it's deeply unhealthy. Um, I, I've found over over time, mm-hmm. even if you have thick skin or you think you have thick skin, you can only hear and read those uh, messages telling you what a terrible person you are for so long, until mm-hmm. it starts to to actually harm your your mental health. And so I, I've had to mm-hmm. change my um, my my interactions. Sadly. Sadly, over the uh, over the past year, um, I'm, I'm in the replies a lot, lot less. And what, what what I've had to do though is I always remember, and and I, it gets back to that humanity piece. We have an empathy crisis in our country, and I'm always trying to remember empathy. And so in, instead of replying in anger, um, I, I I do have one solution that I will recommend to everybody, and that is I, I have a Twitter buddy. Um, I've always had a Twitter buddy, um, and anytime I'm ready to reply with something where where my, my blood's boiling a little bit, I always send that, uh, either I don't send it at all or I send it to my Twitter buddy at, oh my gosh, who, who, will, who will say thumbs up or thumbs down in, in the moment. That's awesome. Mm. I love that. Yeah, it's just sort of give it a test run, slow it down. 
Yeah, um, somebody who's not in the moment with me, who's outside right. of it and can see things clear-eyed and, and say, yeah, that's an important response. And, and, and this goes back to something um, that the good senator said at the beginning. You know, there, there are times, and I want to be clear here, there are times for disagreement and there are times where we need to be passionate mm-hmm. and, and we need to fight for what we believe in, mm-hmm. but it should always be about ideas and not people, right? We, we should, mm-hmm. If you have to attack mm-hmm. an idea, attack mm-hmm. an idea. Don't attack the person. There are also times to defend, and, and we should defend our ideas. But, but she, she mentioned a third time, and, and it's a time to be a peacemaker. And that's what's disappeared. The, the peacemaker piece yeah. of that equation is almost gone from our, our politics. We have defenders and we have fighters, but we have no peacemakers. And uh, peacemaking is, is seen as weak today. Um, when mm-hmm. it's the exact mm-hmm. opposite. It's, it's one of the hardest uh, things you can do, but also the most rewarding. And so I'm just begging for, for more, more peacemakers. Right, and more sort of rewards for the peacemakers, right? Yes. More encouragement, less loneliness. Um, I do want to ask about how you decide when to defend and when to just turn the other cheek or let it go. I mean, Tucker Carlson came after you very personally, um, sort of classic bullying tactics attacked you as weak, mm-hmm. elitist. You know, I noticed that there was a pause before you responded, and then you did respond, but I got the sense it was with great care. Sure. And, and that's, <laughs> I wish there was a way to get this right uh, all of the time. And I, I certainly haven't figured out. We, we, mm-hmm. we talk mm-hmm. often about when do you, you know, when do you respond? Do you respond at all? Um, how do you respond? For, for me, writing is really important. So if I, if I can take time to sit down and write out my thoughts and my responses, um, the first draft is always angrier. And then I, I do, I pause and, and I wait mm. Um, there will always be an opportunity to respond. We don't have to be in every news cycle. And I have a good group of people around me to help take some of those edges off or decide when to leave some of those edges in. And then look at, you know, who you're responding to. And, uh, you know, I, I, I rarely dignify. Look, I stopped watching cable news nine years ago. Uh, I've been sober for nine years and it's the best thing that ever happened mm. to me. So I don't want to play into that. You know, I, mm. I, I don't need to add fuel to that fire because it, 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 you get trapped in that, that loop that you talked about and, and it's, it's hard to get out. So if you never get in, you, you don't have to worry about getting out. And that's what I'm trying to realize. And, and it's, I'm learning. Um, I, I think we need to give politicians, um, public servants an opportunity to learn and grow and change. We do that in every other profession in this world. Mm-hmm. We, we encourage it. We, we admire it. And here, if you learn or change, you're a flip-flopper or you're weak or, you know, and, and we've, we've got to change those, those expectations. Sometimes you have to respond and you, you have to defend yourself. It's hard to know when, right? Yeah. It is hard to know. But what I can always say is in the moment, you, you almost always get it wrong. It needs to be right, thoughtful so and, it, and, mm-hmm. and intentional. And, Your and, intuition is not a good mm-hmm. compass. It's, it's, that's, that's right. It is, <laughs> it is almost never the right response. Here's our next insight. Both Governor Cox and Senator Ballant have found that relationship and rapport are prerequisites to any constructive conflict. So they tend to engage where others might not, on Twitter and even with homophobic neighbors across the fence. But they've also learned to limit their exposure to vitriol for their own mental health and to pause before responding to any attack. 
And what I hear you saying is you have a bunch of checks and balances on your ego and your intuition and your reactivity, including writing, which is a great one, very well supported in the research, and also uh, your your team and people you go to, um, and I assume also prayer and your um, spiritual faith. So much prayer. <laughs> so important, right? Everyone I know who's resisted high conflict has had some kind of practice of exercise or meditation or prayer. Mm-hmm. Governor Cox, any last um, advice for Senator Ballant and other politicians, you know, in the heat of, of primary season here? Well, just I, I, I want to thank the good senator for uh, the example that she's setting on the other side of the country. Um, it, it's thank nice you. to find people who, who see the world this way and, and are working hard to make it uh, better. I, I would just add this in, in closing. I had an incredible opportunity, uh, the National Governors Association. We were at the Swiss Ambassador's uh, residence in, in D.C. a couple months ago, and he spoke to us. And he talked about all the things ambassadors talk about, trade with our countries, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, but then he started talking about... Um, his view of the United States growing up and how the United States led through crises, through you know, w- world wars and um, the space race, the Cold War, and, and all of these incredible things that the United States had accomplished in leading the world. And, and then he talked about how there are dark clouds on the horizon. This was just a couple weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. And then he paused and he just, he, he spoke passionately about how, he was worried that at the time when the world needed the leadership of the United States the most, um, we were too mm. busy fighting culture wars and hating each other uh, mm. to, to, to actually lead the world. This stuff we're talking about right now isn't just an existential crisis for the United States and our politics. It's an existential crisis for the rest of the world. And I had never seen it through that lens. It, it just hit me over the head that this is so much bigger than just, you know, do we feel good about ourselves and are we bickering? And so I would just leave that, that... Um, this, this, what you post on Facebook tomorrow uh, could really have consequences, uh, worldwide consequences, um, months and years from now. Yeah, I think we underestimate the power of that. And this is the race, right? I mean, yes, there's the primaries or midterms. There's there are a lot of races happening. But I, listening to you, I start to think that the real race is, can we get the exhausted majority to be hopeful enough that they will do these things yes. before things get worse, yes. right? That feels like the race. Agreed. That is it. That is the big challenge before all of us. We cannot lose hope, Amanda. We just can't. Is there any last thing you want to ask voters or regular people to do to support politicians like you? Yes. If you see somebody within your community who may be an elected official or may just be a leader of an organization and you see them doing something that is contributing in a positive way, drop them an actual card or an email or a phone call and say, hey, I saw you do this thing and it really matters. Thank you for doing that. Oh my gosh, (laughs) they will change my whole day. My whole day, really. When I'm like getting beat up, those things really matter to those of us in public service. Thank you to Utah Governor Spencer Cox and Vermont State Senator Becca Ballant for finding time in their busy schedules to take off the gloves and help us figure this out. We'll link to their websites in the show notes. 
Are you trying to make peace with your problems? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard today, please let us know. Give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces this show with help from Katie Shepard. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>